Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Desiree. It's been a little while since I've heard you sing a special, and that was a blessing to my soul. So, what a great day to choose to be at Loomis. Well, I didn't choose it, but what a great day to be at Loomis Park Baptist Church. Uh, my name is Aaron Pratt. I'm an evangelist hailing all the way from Clark Lake, Michigan. <laughs> Most of you, if not all of you, know me. Um, my wife would love to be here today, but she has some kind of virus, and she just wasn't able to make it. We are in Genesis. That's where we'll begin. Genesis chapter number 1. Chapter number 1 and verse 26. This morning, we talked about our foundations for spiritual warfare. In the introduction to that, I went through and we went through and we thought about the ways in which Satan is warring against the minds and the hearts and the wills of each and every one of us, whether saved or unsaved, whether living in Haiti or in the United States of America. And just as a bit of review for what we went through this morning, I want to begin in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. I'm just going to read the first part. The Bible says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you so much for your word. My dear God, I thank you that the deliverance of this message has nothing to do with my ability or my inability. Dear God, I know that these are spiritual words and what will be delivered are spiritual things and they're not delivered. Victory is not won through carnal means and carnal methods and speech-giving tactics, Heavenly Father, but this is a spiritual book. You are a spiritual Father, and we have the Holy Spirit among us, and I pray that you would teach us. I pray that you would preach to our souls today. My Heavenly Father, I pray that you would get me out of your way. I just want to be a vessel. pray, Heavenly Father, that you would bound that wicked one, that deceiver, that wicked one that would steal the seeds of the word of God out of the hearts here this morning. We pray for these things in your name. Amen. This morning in Sunday school, we talked about our threefold battle, our the ways in which God created us. We begin in Romans, or Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. God says, let us make man in our image. God begins creation having a conversation with himself. And we see from scripture that you and I are created in the image of God, that we are not duplicates of God, that we're not a replica of God, but that we are created in the image of God. That is, God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. You and I are body, soul, and spirit. We identified and understood that the body is that which makes up our hands, our flesh and blood. 
the things that we sense with our brains and our spinal cord, the thought patterns that are, that are produced inside of us as we go through habits of daily life, the physical and mental addictions that we sometimes succumb ourselves to. Then we identified what the soul is. The soul is the mind, the will, and the emotions. Or truly, as the order in which it actually affects us is the mind, the emotions, and our will. We see that the Bible very distinctly defines the body, the soul, and the spirit, and that in the Old Testament we saw that, or at least it was mentioned that in the Old Testament, soul and spirit are kind of used a little bit interchangeably, but when we get to the New Testament, it's used a little bit more clearly. Hebrews 4 verse 12, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That this book right here, it's a spiritual book and through the Holy Ghost, this book right here is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It tells us what we really think about things, and it tells us what our wills actually are. It's something that divides and helps us understand what is my own soul and my own will and what is the will of the Heavenly Father. Is a dividing asunder of soul and spirit. And so what we can draw out of Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 is that our soul and our spirit do not think alike. You ever have an argument with yourself? You ever talk to yourself? You ever try to convince yourself of doing something? Number two, we see in this verse that the Bible is the most effective weapon in spiritual warfare. You and I, we are so, we're so distracted by flesh and blood. That's why Satan, that's why Jesus had to over and over again emphasize in his preaching and to his apostles he, tried, he had to emphasize that this is a spiritual warfare. It's not one through your arguments, through your means, through your programs, through this thing and that thing. It's not one through your, your psychological tactics, and it's not one through your personality. It's not one through, through your power. It's not one through your money. It is only one through the Spirit of God, and that Spirit of God and His power is found on our knees in fasting and in prayer. Yet so many of us are unaware that a battle is taking place. Or if we are aware, we don't care enough to succumb ourselves to prayer and fasting. So often we think that we can solve the problem more quickly and more efficiently by reading a book about it or looking at a self-help YouTube video about it. Do you believe that God can solve all of your problems? Do you believe that this book has all of the answers to life's questions? Well, prove it. Instead of going to 
the internet for your answer. Go to God for your answers. Go to God for your questions. Go to God for your problems. And wait there until he gives you an answer. Knock over and over and over again. Casting down imaginations. Those false thoughts. Those seed thoughts of Satan. The Bible commands us to cast down imaginations. And every thought that and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. We saw this morning in seeing this foundation of spiritual warfare, we saw that the battle for your soul always and was 100% in your mind. That is where it's won and lost. We saw this morning that if you are a child of God, you're a born-again child of God, we understood in the Sunday school hour that the place in which the Holy Ghost takes his residence is in your spirit. And if he takes his residence in your spirit, then Satan has no grounds there. He has no jurisdiction there. Therefore, there's a place that you can always go, dear Christian, there's a place that you can always go and always abide in that Satan has no rule over, no jurisdiction over, no power over. Yet we cannot separate ourselves from our bodies and we cannot separate ourselves from our souls. And so if we are going to live victorious in this Christian life, if we're not always going to be fleeing, fleeing the battlefield and always running against the battlefield and always beaten down by Satan and always understanding that the battle is waging when it's way too late and he's already stuck his arrows inside of us, if we're going to be victorious in our own lives and victorious for our brothers and sisters in Christ, if we're going to be fathers that are victorious for our children, fathers that are victorious for our wives, if we're going to be men and women of God that are victorious Christians, not just in our own lives, but on the behalf of others fighting this battlefield for our brothers and sisters in Christ, then we must understand that the battlefield that Satan wages against your mind and against every single person in this room is always beginning in your mind because if he has your mind, he has your emotions, and he has your will. He has everything. I was giving you an example this morning about my daughter Emma, my oldest daughter, and her battle with school. I've had to take home over homeschooling, and my, my oldest daughter, she, I don't know, my wife, she's a lot more sensitive than I am. And so when my kids cry because they can't get their school and they, they don't want to do school and they cry and my wife's a lot kinder to them. I'm not very kind to them and compassionate to them. And so I say, stop crying. My daughter says, I can't. And I tell her, and I, I use that as a teaching opportunity, that you have to control your emotions. Her response is, I can't control my emotions. My response is, I know you can't. 
but you can control the thoughts that bring you to crying. You see, she cries because she couldn't, can't get a problem, right? And she fails and she has to try again and she cries and she thinks she can't do it. And when she cries, she's given up. And I told her, I said, listen, Emma, it's like the answer. You're so close to it that you can touch it. But when you begin to cry, you believe that your effort is useless, that there's no reason to try again, and you step further and further away from that answer. You think the right thoughts, that if I ask God to give me the ability to get the answer right, and if I try again, and if I never give up, that eventually it might take me 10 times of failure, but eventually I'll get the answer. The battlefield is always in your mind. My wife, you know my wife, Bethany, she has an illness that's very strange, very hard to explain. If we go to conventional medicine, medical doctors, they don't understand it, they don't research it, um, they can't help us. But her medical condition is affected by mold and toxins and so many other things, and it's, it's affected other areas in her body to where she's having hormonal issues now. And my wife, before I took over schooling, she was literally in bed four days a week just after Christmas. And um, I remember several months ago, my wife lying in bed. She was sick. When she's sick, I, like, you just use your imagination. My wife, when she's sick, she can't do anything. She can't even take care of herself. She can't take care of our kids. She can't make dinner. There's, there's nothing that she can do. And if you can imagine how then the devil will play games with that, that you're worthless. You're just the baggage to your husband. And look at your kids. You can't even be a mom. You can't be a wife. And He's whispering these false thoughts, these wicked imaginations inside of her mind. And she was telling me that she felt guilty about being sick. I said, Bethany, you've not done anything wrong. It's not like you did something wrong and that got this sickness. God has seen to it in his sovereignty and in his love as a heavenly father that her sickness and the ways in which it's limited us is the best thing for us. There is no reason that you should ever feel guilty for being limited by a heavenly, loving heavenly father. I'll give you another example of this Mind, emotions, will. You get your right thoughts, you will have the right emotions, and then you will produce the right will. Last example. Several weeks ago, we had that outage all across Jackson, and I was living in my father-in-law's house because we didn't have power for a whole week, so we had to move in there. We didn't have means to live inside the house without doing that, and so well, I guess we could have, but my kids would have been very cold. So, um, so we went through that, and I don't know. I just had this 
depression that came to me. And all like, I just, I don't like anyone. I don't like myself. I don't like my kids. I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't feel that there's any profit for me to hide who I actually am and the struggles that I've been through. And I, I remember, I just, I didn't, like, I didn't like anything. I didn't like anyone. I didn't like anything. And I was, I was in depression. I didn't even realize it at the time. I sat down. I'm like, Lord, what is going on? Why, what, like, where is this coming from? And I knew that the emotion existed. I didn't know where to identify the right thought. I had no idea what false imagination I was believing, what thought that exalted itself against the knowledge of Christ. I had no idea how to identify it. And the Lord said to me, I want you to think on right things. Aaron, I want you, as I sought the Lord, he said, Aaron, I, I want you to start thanking me for all the things you have. And so I began to thank the Lord for the things that I had. I began to think the right thoughts. I began to think on the things that are lovely, think on the things that are good, think on the things that are true. And all of that depression lifted away. That depression was a demonic tactic. You know, just because something satanic is happening to you, it doesn't mean you're going to get an eerie feeling every time. Satan does a good job at disguising himself as an angel of light. Now I want to, as we understand the foundation for spiritual warfare, and we conclude what we were in this morning, I want to get into something that, man, you get this this morning and it will change your life. It will change your motivation and everything that you do. Who we are in Christ. Sitting among us, there are people who suffer from the crippling imagination of self-rejection. All among us, there's Satan crippling so many of us and making us ineffective soldiers for Jesus Christ because we suffer with insecurities that make us hesitate to do what we ought to do. Having these personal doubts and these fears, this self-rejection, this resignation, this isolation, this not pursuing the highest aspirations, this missing out on various life opportunities because we punish ourselves and reject ourselves for whatever reason, because we're comparing ourselves among ourselves, because we suffer from guilt that's already been under the blood. We then engage in this like self-punitive habits and we, we, we punish ourselves and feel like because we've failed God or because we don't think that we're good enough, we need to do penance and like whip ourselves on the back in order to be somehow accepted in Christ and accepted in the beloved. We need to somehow whip ourselves for our past failures, for our present mistakes. And then eventually we just give up. We avoid rejection by never actually doing anything. We avoid rejection or failure by removing ourselves from that situation. 
So many of us are bound by insecurities. This uncertainty, this feeling of inadequacy that haunts us and cripples us, this not ever feeling good enough. Good enough father, good enough husband, good enough wife, good enough mother, good enough worker, good enough church member, good enough choir singer, you name it. You always seek the best for others? Or are you always looking to validate yourself? You're always looking for self-validation in your interactions with others, then you, whether or not you want to admit it, you're insecure. You always, are you prone to admit your mistakes or do you blame others for your mistakes? If you blame others for your mistakes, then you might not want to admit it and you might not believe it to be true, but you're insecure. You ever afraid to go outside your comfort zone? Avoid anything that's new and different than what you've already always done? I'm not talking about changing the music. I, we're, not, we're not going there. You might not know me well enough, but I love the hymns of the faith. I am an independent fundamental Baptist. And I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not recovering from that. You always believe that others are judging you. Sometimes the culture of our independent fundamental Baptist churches breeds that. Are you always judging others? Are you decisive or indecisive? These emotions, these insecurities, these self-rejections, these personal doubts and fears, they're emotions that produce bad fruit. And in dealing with these emotions, we do not confront the emotions themselves. We confront the lie that is behind the emotions and replace it with the truth. The problem, though, is that so many of us, too many of us, we don't understand what the truth actually is. And we can utter the words of the prophet Hosea. In Hosea 4, 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. There's a root lie here. When you're looking for your acceptance among your friends among your husband or your wife, among your pastor, when you're continually seeking acceptance from your boss and your co-worker and this person and that person and always feel like your worth is bound up in how other people view you, you've believed a lie from Satan. You are accepted by God based on how much you do for him? Or are you accepted by God on how well you do what you do for him? Or are you like Ephesians 1, 6, and you can turn there, I'm just going to read it quickly and move along, but Ephesians 1, 6, you believe the truth 
I mean, we can quote the truth. We can say with our minds that, yeah, we're accepted in the beloved. But do you believe it? You always prove what you believe by what you do. Not by what you say, not by how you feel, but by what you do. Ephesians 1, 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he hath made us, we didn't make ourselves, he hath made us accepted, not we have made us accepted, but he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Yet so many of us, we're continually trying to find acceptance in him. We're continually trying to work ourselves up to where we can somehow be in the presence of God and in the throne room of heaven. We're continually trying to, to be good enough to get there. Can I tell you something? When you were saved by the blood, by the death, by the burial, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it had nothing ever to do with how good of a person you are. So what makes you think that the ground on which you stand in the throne room of heaven, and in your daily life, in your daily activity, and in the God's heart towards you, what makes you think that has anything to do with your output here today? Accepted in the beloved. But we believe the lie, and there's a need to reprogram ourselves here this morning. You see, this lie, it comes, and I don't think it comes intentionally, but it comes from pulpits all across America. It comes from independent, fundamental Baptist pulpits. It's even come out of my mouth. That somehow, if you produce enough, you'll be accepted by God. You'll be on more ground to pray to him. You'll be on more ground to have power over death, hell, and the devil. Why do people experience self-rejection? Not good enough. They look at their own faults and their failures. They, they look at themselves and their personality and their gifts and their abilities and they reject those themselves and they say, I'm worth nothing. There's nothing that I can do. Number one, I think that they do not forgive themselves. You know, you, you'll confess and forsake your sin You'll repent of your sin, and you'll look for a feeling, and if you don't get that feeling, Satan comes in and says, God's still mad at you. He's not accepted you. And you go back in your mind and you say, but I've confessed my sin, and as much as I know how, I've forsaken my sin, and yet you're looking for this feeling of how I'm accepted in the beloved, and you need to mark it down, Christian, that when God says that he will wash away your sins if you forsake and confess your sins, you need to count it as fact, not what your emotions say, not what Satan is whispering in your ear to say, but you need to count it as fact that when you confess and forsake, 
forsake your sins. They are washed clean in the blood of Jesus Christ. And you are then as clean as you've ever been. That's a glorying, freeing doctrine. Because you can't serve God if you're always weighted down because you haven't forgiven yourself for something that God's already forgiven you for. So what you do is you, you whip yourself in the penance and you say, you get on your knees, maybe I need to get on my knees to be forgiven. I mean, maybe I need to fast to be forgiven. Maybe, maybe I just need to feel bad. Maybe I just didn't feel bad enough. And so then we, we conjure up all this false emotion. We play these games with God because we don't believe his word is true. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We whip ourselves to teach ourselves a lesson. We believe we haven't felt bad enough to be forgiven. And then, then because we don't feel forgiven, we don't feel like we can serve God and then we mess up again because we don't think his grace is there. We go into this self-destruction cycle until we hit rock bottom. We've committed greater and greater sins. What's the problem? It's false thoughts that produce false emotions that produce a false will. I remember talking to my wife about something and she was uttering an interaction that she had with somebody um, somebody that was at our church and had left our church and they were just kind of, they came in for like a baby shower or something like that and they were mocking our church and things like that for the standards there and everything. And my wife was like beating herself up because she didn't feel like she spoke up enough. I told my wife, I said, don't let Satan beat you up over that. Maybe you did fail. Get it under the blood, forget the things that are behind, and move forward. Don't beat yourself up over that. Don't let Satan beat yourself up over that. This doctrine of Satan, that you are somehow accepted by your works, is taught in our churches, by our pastors, by our missionaries, by our evangelists, by the ladies in our churches, by the men, by the fathers, by the husbands. It's taught to the children. Acceptance based on performance, you will not find it in the Bible. Why do you serve God? Why do you go soul winning if you do? Why do you hand out tracts if you do? Is it because you want to be accepted by God? Is it because you want to be able to take part in a track count and be able to submit a good number? Because you want your pastor to think well of you? Is that why you come door knocking? Why do you do what you do? You see, you and I, we can produce all of these good fruits in this life. And if we're doing it for the wrong reasons, then at the judgment seat of Christ, they all will burn up. The question why is a pivotal question. It means everything. I'm going to 
share with you a story. It's a true story. I'll change the names. Story of Grace. There's a lady named Grace, and she's at a gathering, a prayer gathering of several ladies, and she's spilling out her heart, and she's talking about how she's incapacitated. She used to be able to serve the Lord now, but now because of an illness, she can't do it anymore. Um, she has children, she has grandchildren, and she's not able to do it anymore. And she was just sharing a prayer request. She didn't feel like she was good enough. She didn't feel, she felt like somehow she wasn't accepted by God as much as she used to be because she didn't work as much as she used to be. So she has a lady in that group, and we'll call this lady Vanity, and Vanity says, oh, you're okay, you, you do enough. And poor Grace is sitting there, and she's like, in her heart, I can just imagine, I appreciate you, Vanity, but your counsel is vain to me, it's empty. I'm telling you that I don't believe that it's enough, will you just listen to me? So often we try to encourage other people and their failures or their insecurities or whatever. And they, we say, you're good enough. It's okay. Look at all that you do. Look at all that you've done. Because we don't understand the root issue. Our counsel is just wind. It might motivate us for a little while, but then when the wind stops, so does the motivation. It's vanity. Another lady in this meeting speaks up, and this is Martha, and Martha just says, well, you need to pray more. And then the other ladies around the group, they, 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 they chorus in with Martha, and they say, yeah, you just need to pray more. And, and poor Grace, she says, I, you don't understand. I've never prayed so much in my life. That's all I do is pray. And then just almost like Job's miserable counselors, they ignore what she said and say, but you need to pray more. There's always more that you can pray. And she says, no, 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 you're, you're missing the point. I pray enough. And then finally, a Mary stands up. She says, you know, I think the problem here is that we've been taught from our pulpits That your value as a Christian hinges upon how much you do for God. And that can't be found in the Bible. You won't find a chapter and verse on that without taking it out of context. She said, the problem isn't that you don't do enough. Miss Grace, the problem isn't how much or how little you do, but that you are accepted in the beloved. That's the truth. Regardless of how little you do or how much you do, that you, if you are in the will of God, you are accepted in the person of Jesus Christ. You are not accepted based upon your performance. You're not accepted based upon your own righteousness. All our righteousness are as filthy rags. 
They were before I got saved, and they still are after I get saved. My only righteousness that produces any kind of lasting fruit and won't be burned up at the judgment seat is the righteousness that the Holy Ghost pours out of me, not what I try to punch into me. You're not accepted by how much you do for him. You could never do enough for him, and thus you could never then be accepted by him on that account. We feel this pressure from Satan, from man, and not God. We have this guilt that originates from Satan that I'm just not doing enough. I'm just not enough. I'm not good enough. I don't have the talents that everyone else has. I don't have the opportunity that all these other people have. That guilt that cripples us into self-rejection comes from Satan and man and his flesh and not God. That condemnation then cripples us to even, we can't even pray properly because we are insecure as to whether or not God is even listening because we don't think that we're good enough. Can I tell you something? You're not good enough. You're not good enough to enter into his throne room. The most active Christian, Hudson Taylor, Charles Spurgeon, those men were never good enough to enter into the throne room. Neither are you. Neither am I. Most active Christians that have ever existed, your missionaries, your pastors, your old ladies, your old men in the church that serve faithfully, you're not good enough. But God saw to it to put each and every one of you Inside Jesus Christ? Inside Jesus Christ? Where is Jesus Christ right now? Seated on the right hand of the throne in heaven. So where are you seated right now? You're seated so close to God the Father that you could whisper to him and he could hear you. Not because of your righteousness, not because of your good works, but because you are accepted in Christ Jesus to the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. We're not working to be accepted in the blood, beloved. That's a past tense word. He's already done it. Because he saw to it to put all of your failures failures, and all of your insecurities and all of who you are where you lose this battle with Satan on a day-to-day basis and lose this battle with your flesh on a day-to-day basis. Even though you're, you're crippled by guilt and you're chained by bonds of sin, God says, I still take you and I put you in Jesus Christ. And you are accepted by me. So who cares if you're not accepted by others? Scenario of Grace and Martha and Mary 
and vanity plays out again and again and again. Even after those words were uttered by Mary, Martha still chimed up and said, yeah, but you still need to pray more. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Did you receive Jesus Christ the Lord by works? By faith. So walk ye in him. You might not feel like you're in Christ. You might not feel like you're accepted in the beloved. But so walk ye in him. Did you receive the Lord Jesus Christ based on a feeling and that was your security? No. All of us, every single one of us, if you're saved and on your way to heaven, you received Jesus Christ by the grace and faith of God. And thus you walk in him in that same grace and faith. Not work, you didn't work your way to get to heaven, you could never do that. Thus, you don't work your way to be accepted by God. You are already accepted by him, but you got to believe that in order for that to be powerful in your life. If you don't believe that, then it holds no power in your life. You will still be crippled by insecurities. You'll still be crippled by self-condemnation. You'll still be crippled by self-rejection and doubt. And you'll still be crippled by the opinions of men and women. Lies of our churches ring out that you're only right with God if you go out and win souls and have a bus route and, and sing in the choir. And, and where does that say that in the Bible? Listen, I am very, very much for house-to-house visitation. I believe of all the methods that you could use for evangelism, that's one that goes right back to the times when Jesus walked the earth. That goes right back when Paul says, when I, as he's departing and he's about to be imprisoned and killed, right back there he says, when I first came to you, I went house to house. Preach the gospel. Bus routes, my, these have been going on for centuries. I mean, you can search the internet and they'll tell you that fundamental Baptists, they made up bus routes and they made up door-to-door knocking. Before there were buses, there were people going door-to-door to invite those who were rejects of society into the churches. They called that Sunday school. Before Sunday school ever started, there were still those programs within our churches. I'm not saying, I want you to understand me. You don't know me very well. I need you to understand me that when I say this, I'm not preaching against reading your Bible and praying more. I'm not preaching against being a soul winner. I'm not preaching against handing out tracts. I'm not preaching against church attendance. I am 100% for all of those things. But if you're doing those things to be accepted by God or to be accepted by other people, then you are believing and participating in a doctrine of devils. 
We see it in our missions programs. We treat our missionaries. Listen, what you do in your missions program is none of my business. I'm an evangelist. I'm a, I'm a watchman on a watchtower. I've been in enough churches. This is not one of them. You guys are full of grace. I've not detected this from you, but where they treat their missionaries like an employee. Well, we're going to interview you and see if you're worthy of our support. What makes you think you have the ability to judge whether or not they're worthy of your support? I'm not talking about judging whether or not they're right on doctrinal issues. I'm just talking about we ask questions like, you know, what, what's your wife wear to bed? I want to know whether or not I, my wife wears pants to bed. You know, just these kinds of things that you see and how many, how many souls did you win last year? You know, if you really wanted to put something on a questionnaire for your missionaries, what you should put on there is how often do you fast? How much do you pray? A day. Because that's, that is in truth where power is gotten. Yet we treat our missionaries like they're employees and we give them an employee review. You have productive missionaries. Think of a couple missionaries in our church. Pastor No-No. I think you guys know him. He's a very productive missionary. We have other missionaries that are in fields like Israel, hard fields. They're not productive missionaries. We have some, I don't know that we've ever heard them say that they've led a soul to the Lord. And the way in which we look at it in our carnal minds is that we think that Pastor No-No is worth more support because he performs more than the missionary that's in a hard field and it doesn't seem like they are performing as well. We treat missionaries like they're our employees and we give them an employee review. And so we put ourselves into this cast where we don't accept our missionaries in the beloved. We accept our missionaries based on their performance. And if that is your thought, it's because you believe that God accepts you based on your performance. If you have the right thoughts about God, then you will have the right thoughts about other people. What you believe about God is very important because what you believe about God impacts all of your relationships with other people. You want to see somebody that's a bad father, a bad mother, a bad pastor, a bad deacon. The problem lies not in the outward manifestation of their sins. The problem lies in having a wrong view of God. You know, missionaries, they're not an investment like a stock market. We put up these man-made things like... If I, invest, if I invest more money in Pastor No-No, then that means I'll have more rewards in heaven because he's more productive. That's nowhere in Scripture. But if I invest in our missionaries in Israel, that's, that's not very productive. We're going to keep supporting them because we love them, but we won't get as many rewards because they don't have many souls saved. That's not what Paul meant whenever he says, I desire a gift from you so that fruit may abound to your account. You don't get fruit based upon Paul's work. You get fruit in the action of giving in and of itself. There's no doctrine in Scripture that says that you get fruit based upon what another man does. You will not find it anywhere in your Bible. 
Yeah, but how can you say that servant service isn't important? I didn't say that. Because your service, your will, what you do, your mind, your will, your emotions, your will, what you do shows everything about what you actually believe and what you actually think. Think of the parable of the talents. Talents are not like we think we, they are. We, we look at the talents, right? And we look at them as the gifts and abilities. That's not what Jesus meant whenever he was talking about talents because he also saw that each one of them had their several abilities, their different abilities in that passage of Scripture. So each one of them had their different abilities, and then he gave talents. Those talents are opportunities. Some of them he gave a little bit of opportunity. Others he gave a medium amount of opportunity. Another he gave a lot of opportunity. And one wicked servant, he said, God, he sounds like a Calvinist. He says, God, I know that you're an austere man. And so as you do, will produce what you will and not produce what you will. And so I just buried my treasure. And God says, you're a fool. You should have lent it into the marketplace. And they would have, you should have used your opportunities in some way. And then he goes to the one that had a little bit and the one that had a lot. I might be mixing them up. And he says, he says each one of them produced a different amount. But he says the same exact thing to each one of them. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Your reward in heaven has nothing to do with your production. It has everything to do with your faithfulness to what God has asked you to do. So you look at a pastor, no, no, that produces much in his field. If he's faithful to what God calls him to do, God will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And you look at a man in Israel who has a hard field. And he doesn't see a lot of production, a lot of souls saved, a lot of churches planted. He doesn't see that. Pastor No-No isn't rewarded more for his faithfulness than the man in Israel for his faithfulness. You don't see that in Scripture either. You take the opportunities that God has given you and you be faithful for them and you will be rewarded. It's not about your output. It's about your faithfulness to what he's called you to do. We believe this lie, and when we believe this lie, you will do these things with the wrong motive. You will struggle with acceptance. You will struggle with forcing others to perform up to your perceived benchmarks. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in our performance. No. Accepted in whom my Jesus Christ is. And because I am in him and in Christ, I am accepted in him. And the more that you affirm who you are in Christ, the more your behavior will begin to reflect your true identity. Did you hear that? The more you reaffirm who you are in Christ, the more your behavior will begin to reflect your true identity. Christian walk-in experience is not about making the outside perfect so that the inside will be perfect. That is a pathway for destruction. 
It is about making an understanding that who we are in Christ is perfect. And there he, he will give us the power to accomplish what he's asked us to do, including victory over every single sin and trouble and traumatic experience that haunts us and the fears that cripple us and the sins that bond us. Who you are in Christ means everything. You are a slave and a servant. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated into the gospel of God, not against your own will, but volunteers his will to another. He serves not to be accepted, but he serves as a slave, a servant, because he's accepted. Oh, there's a world of difference there. You are in the beloved, you are God's child. But as many as received him to them, he gave ye power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. You are God's child. Many of you are parents. Maybe most of you are parents. Do you reject your child based on performance? I mean, my soul, I'm teaching my kids, well, you didn't do a good enough job on that assignment today, so I reject you. That's ridiculous. Is not God the Father a much better father or mother than you? You are Christ's friends. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servants not know what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. Accepted in the beloved makes you a friend of God. You are united in one spirit. When you became a child of God, the Holy Ghost now lives inside of you and occupies your spirit. You are one with that spirit. You are bought with a price. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. You are a member of Christ's body. Is he going to chop it off? Is he going to look at his hand and say, well, you're not performing up the snuff today? No, he doesn't reject his hand. He doesn't reject his eye. You are accepted, not in your own performance, not in your own righteousness. You are accepted in the beloved. You have direct access to him. For though through him we have both access by one spirit unto the Father. You stand, praise the name of God. You stand redeemed. Oh, redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And if you're here today and you're not redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, you are not accepted in the Beloved. God rejects you and he will reject you for all eternity until you come to him and say, I can't get to heaven on my own, Lord. I put myself down at your altar and ask you to save my soul. You stand redeemed in him because you placed your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, not because of your performance. You are complete in him. You have all the tools in Jesus Christ to live a life that is victorious over sin. You are complete in him. You are secure in him. You're free from condemning charges. You cannot be separated from the love of Christ. The good work will be performed. God will never give up on you, even though you may have given up on yourself. Even though you may give up on other people, God will never give up on those other people. The good work will be performed, being confident in this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God is not 
given you a spirit of fear. You are significant in him. He's made you perfectly. Even all of your, all of your, like, I can't sing. Not like Desiree. I can't sing. But God hears my singing and, and he hears the flatness of it. And if it comes out of my heart, it's something that he accepts the praise and loves it. So even though Desiree can sing better than I can, he accepts my voice just as much as he does hers. He's chosen you to bring forth fruit. You are the branch of the true vine. This is not about your performance, but about you surrendering every day to him and allowing him to bring the fruit out of you. There's a big difference, my brothers and sisters. One leads to continual failure and the other leads to continual victory. When you are in Christ, when you are full of the Holy Ghost, you cannot sin. It's not possible. The moment you sin, you are not full of the Holy Ghost, you are not abiding in the vine, and you may approach God with freedom and confidence. Not based on what you did in the past. Not based on who you are or who you think you are or who others perceive you to be. But based on who Jesus Christ is. Please stand with your heads bowed. Your eyes closed as the pianist comes and you just pick out a number and begin playing. <laughs>